0: We need to make haste. Liberal democracy is moving to a form of corporate dictatorship. This is an historic shift, and the media must not be allowed to be its facade, but itself made into a popular burning issue and subjected to direct action. That great whistleblower, Tom Paine, warned that if the majority of the people were denied the truth and the ideas of truth, It was time to storm what he called the Bastille of words. The time is now. Thank you.
1: That's John Pilger, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamyan. This edition of AR features John Pilger on lapdogs with laptops. A vital and independent press is essential to the functioning of democracy. In recent years... Media concentration has accelerated. This has resulted in the closing down of many domestic and foreign bureaus and a sharp reduction in the number of working reporters. In pursuit of a juicy tidbit, too many journalists today cozy up to power. They take pride in being called on by their first name at presidential news conferences. They play golf and tennis with high administration officials and are invited to all the important dinner parties. We need a press that will hold the feet of the powerful to the fire and not drink Cabernet Sauvignon with them. Citizens are ill-served by lapdogs with laptops. Our guest today is John Pilger. He was an internationally renowned award-winning journalist and documentary filmmaker. WikiLeaks called him a ferocious speaker of truth to power. Born in Australia, he was long based in London. He was twice selected as Britain's Journalist of the Year. His award-winning documentaries include Palestine is Still the Issue and The Coming War with China. He passed away on December thirtieth, 2023. This classic from the AR archives was recorded in Chicago in 2007. And now, John Pilger.
0: So I thought I would talk today about journalism, about war by journalism, propaganda, and silence, and how that silence might be broken. Edward Bernays, the so-called father of public relations, wrote about an invisible government which is the true ruling power of our country. He was referring to journalism, the media. That was almost 80 years ago, not long after corporate journalism was invented. It's a history few journalists talk about or know about, and it began with the arrival of corporate advertising. As the new corporations began taking over the press, something called professional journalism was invented. To attract big advertisers, the new corporate press had to appear respectable. Pillars of the establishment, objective, impartial, balanced. The first schools of journalism were set up, and a mythology of liberal neutrality was spun around the professional journalist. The right to freedom of expression was associated with the new media, and with the great corporations and the whole thing was, as Robert McChesney put it so well, entirely bogus. (laughs) For what the public didn't know was that in order to be professional, journalists had to ensure that news and opinion were dominated by official sources and that hasn't changed. Go through the New York Times on any day and check the sources of the main political stories domestic and foreign, you'll find they're dominated by governments and other establishment interests. That's the essence of professional journalism. I'm not suggesting that independent journalism was or is excluded, but it's more likely to be an honourable exception. Think of the role Judith Miller played in the New York Times in the run-up to the invasion of, of Iraq. Yes, her work became a scandal but only after it had played a powerful role in promoting an invasion based on lies. But Miller's parroting of official sources and vested interests was not all that different from the work of many famous Times reporters, such as the celebrated W.H. Lawrence, who helped cover up the true effects of the atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima in August 1945. No radioactivity in Hiroshima ruins was the headline on his report, and it was false. (laughs) Consider how the power of this invisible government has grown. In 1983 the principal global media was owned by 50 corporations, most of them American. In 2002 this had fallen to just nine corporations. Today it's probably about five. Rupert Murdoch has predicted that there will be just three global media giants and his company will be one of them. This concentration of power is not exclusive, of course, to the United States. The BBC has announced it's expanding its broadcasts to the United States because it believes Americans want want principle, objective, neutral journalism, for which the BBC is famous. They've launched BBC America. You may have seen the advertising. The BBC began in 1922, just before the corporate press began in America. Its founder was Lord John Reith, who believed that impartiality and objectivity were the essence of professionalism. In the same year, the British establishment was under siege. The unions had called a general strike, and the Tories were terrified that a revolution was on the way. The new BBC came to their rescue. In high secrecy, Lord Reith wrote anti-union speeches for the Tory Prime Minister Stanley Baldwin and broadcast them to the nation while refusing to allow the Labour leaders to put their side until the strike was over. So a pattern was set. Impartiality was a principle, a principle to be suspended whenever the establishment was under threat. And that principle has been upheld ever since. Take the invasion of Iraq. There are two studies of the BBC's reporting. One shows that the BBC gave just 2% of its coverage of Iraq to anti-war dissent. 2%. That's less than the anti-war coverage of ABC, NBC and CBS. A second study by the University of Wales shows that in the build-up to the invasion, 90% of the BBC's references to weapons of mass destruction suggested that Saddam Hussein actually possessed them and that by clear implication, Bush and Blair were right. We now know that the BBC and other British media were used by the secret intelligence service MI6 in what they called Operation Mass Appeal, MI6 agents planted stories about Saddam's weapons of mass destruction, such as weapons hidden in in his palaces and in secret underground bunkers. All these stories were fake. But that's not the point. The point is that the work of MI6 was unnecessary because professional journalism on its own would have produced the same result. Listen to the BBC's man in Washington, Matt Fry. shortly after the invasion. There is no doubt, he told viewers in the UK and all over the world, that the desire to bring good, to bring American values to the rest of the world, and especially now in the Middle East, is now increasingly tied up with American military power. None of this is unusual. BBC News routinely describes the invasion as a miscalculation. Not illegal, not unprovoked, not based on lies, but a miscalculation. The words mistake and blunder a common BBC news currency along with failure, which at least suggests that if the deliberate, calculated, unprovoked, illegal assault on defenseless Iraq had succeeded, that would have been just fine. Whenever I hear these words, I think of Edward Herman's marvelous essay about normalizing the unthinkable. For that's what media cliched language does and is designed to do. It normalizes the unthinkable of the degradation of war, of severed limbs, of maimed children, all of which I've seen. One of my favorite stories about the Cold War concerns a group of Russian journalists who were touring the United States. On the final day of their visit, they were asked by their hosts for their impressions. I have to tell you, said the spokesman, that we were astonished to find, after reading all the newspapers and watching TV day after day, that all the opinions on all the vital issues are the same. (laughs) To get that result in our country, we send journalists to the gulag. (laughs) We, We even tear out their fingernails. Here you don't have to do any of that. What's the secret? (laughs) What is the secret? It's a question seldom asked in newsrooms, in media colleges, in journalism journals. And yet the answer to that question is critical to the lives of millions of people. On August the 24th last year, the New York Times declared this in an editorial. If we had known then what we know now, the invasion of Iraq would have been stopped by a popular outcry. Unquote. This amazing admission was saying, in effect, that journalists had betrayed the public by not doing their job and by accepting and amplifying and echoing the lives of Bush and his gang instead of challenging and exposing them. What the Times didn't say was that had that paper and the rest of the media exposed the lies, up to a million people might be alive today. That's the belief now of a number of senior establishment journalists. Few of them, they've spoken to me about it, few of them will say it in public. Ironically, I began to understand how censorship worked in so-called free societies when I reported from totalitarian societies. During the 1970s, I filmed secretly in Czechoslovakia, then a Stalinist dictatorship. I interviewed members of the dissident group Charter 77, including the novelist Zednady Urbanek. And this is what he told me. I quote him. In dictatorships, we are more fortunate than you in the West, in one respect. We believe nothing of what we read in the newspapers... (laughs) and nothing of what we watch on television because we know it's propaganda and lies. Unlike you in the West, we've learned to look behind the propaganda and to read between the lines. Unlike you, we know that the real truth is always subversive. Bandana Shiva has called this subjugated knowledge. One of the oldest clichés of war is that truth is the first casualty. No, it's not. Journalism is the first casualty. When the Vietnam War was over, the magazine Encounter published an article by Robert Elegant, a distinguished correspondent who had covered the war. For the first time in modern history, he wrote, the outcome of a war was, de- de- was determined not on the battlefield but on the printed page and, above all, on the television screen. He held journalists responsible for losing the war by opposing it in their reporting. Robert Elegant's view became the received wisdom in Washington, and it still is. In Iraq, the Pentagon invented the embedded journalist because it believed that critical reporting had lost Vietnam. The very opposite was true. On my first day as a young reporter in Saigon, I called at the bureaus of (coughs) of the main newspapers and TV companies. I noticed that some of them had a pinboard on the wall on which were gruesome photographs, mostly of bodies of Vietnamese and of American soldiers holding up severed ears and testicles. In one office was a photograph of a man being tortured. Above the torturer's head was a stick-on comic balloon with the words, ''That'll teach you to talk to the press.'' None of these pictures were ever published or even put on the wire. I asked why. I was told that the public would never accept them. Anyway, to publish them would not be objective or impartial. At first, I accepted the apparent logic of this, I too had grown up on stories of the good war against Germany and Japan, that ethical bath that cleansed the Anglo-American world of all evil. But the longer I stayed in Vietnam, the more I realized that our atrocities were not isolated, nor were they aberrations, that the war itself was an atrocity. That was the big story, and it was seldom news. Yes, the tactics and effectiveness of the military were questioned by some very fine reporters. But the word invasion was never used. The anodyne word used was involved. America was involved in Vietnam. The fiction of a well-intentioned, blundering giant stuck in an Asian quagmire was repeated incessantly. It was left to whistleblowers back home to tell the subversive truth, those like Daniel Ellsberg and Seymour Hirsch with his scoop of the My Lai Massacre. There were 649 reporters in Vietnam on March 16, 1968, the day that the My Lai Massacre happened. Not one of them reported it. In both Vietnam and Iraq, deliberate policies and strategies have bordered on genocide. In Vietnam, the forced dispossession of millions of people and the creation of free fire zones. In Iraq, an American-enforced embargo that ran through the 1990s like a medieval siege and killed, according to the United Nations Children's Fund, at least half a million children under the age of five. In both Vietnam and Iraq, banned weapons were used against civilians, as deliberate experiments. Agent Orange changed changed the genetic and environmental order in Vietnam. The military called this Operation Hades. When Congress found out, it was renamed the friendlier Operation Ranch Hand, and nothing changed. That's pretty much the way Congress has reacted to the war in in Iraq. The Democrats have damned it, rebranded it, And extended it. The Hollywood movies that followed the Vietnam War were an extension of the journalism, of normalising the unthinkable. Yes, some of the movies were critical of the military's tactics, but all of them were careful to concentrate on the angst of the invaders. The first of these movies is now considered a classic. It's The Deer Hunter, whose message was that America had suffered. America was stricken. American boys had done their best against Oriental barbarians. The message was all the more pernicious because The Deer Hunter was brilliantly made and acted. I have to admit it's the only movie that has made me shout out loud in a cinema in protest. Oliver Stone's acclaimed movie, Platoon, was said to be anti-war and it did show glimpses of the Vietnamese as human beings but it also promoted, above all, the American invader as victim. I wasn't going to mention uh, the Green Berets when I sat down to write this (laughs) until I read the other day that John Wayne was the most influential movie star who ever lived. I saw The Green Berets starring John Wayne on a Saturday night in 1968 in Montgomery, Alabama. I was down there to uh, interview uh, the then infamous governor, George Wallace, and I'd just come back from Vietnam and I couldn't believe, I couldn't believe how absurd this movie was. So I laughed out loud. (laughs) I laughed and laughed. And it wasn't long before the atmosphere around me grew very cold. My companion, who'd been a freedom rider in the South, whispered, let's get the hell out of here and run run like hell. Well, we were chased all the way back to our hotel but I doubt if any of my pursuers were aware that John Wayne, their hero, had lied so that he wouldn't have to fight in World War II. And yet the phony role model of Wayne sent thousands of young Americans to their deaths in Vietnam, with the notable exceptions of George W. Bush and Dick Cheney. Last year, in his acceptance of the Nobel Prize for Literature, the playwright Harold Pinter made an epic speech. He asked why, and I quote him, the systematic brutality, the widespread atrocities, the ruthless suppression of independent thought in Stalinist Russia were well known in the West while American state crimes were merely superficially recorded, let alone documented. Unquote. And yet across the world the extinction and suffering of countless human beings could be attributed to rampant American power. But, said Pinter, you wouldn't know it. It never happened. Nothing ever happened. Even while it was happening, it wasn't happening. It didn't matter. It was of no interest. Pinter's words were more than the surreal. The BBC ignored the speech of Britain's greatest dramatist. I've made a number of documentaries about Cambodia... The first was Year Zero, the silent death of Cambodia. It describes the American bombing that provided a catalyst for the rise of Pol Pot. What Nixon and Kissinger had started, Pol Pot completed. CIA files alone leave no doubt of that. I offered Year Zero to PBS and took it to Washington. The PBS executives who saw it were shocked. They whispered among themselves. They asked me to wait outside. One of them finally emerged and said, John, we admire your film, but we are disturbed that it says the United States prepared the way for Pol Pot. I I said, well, do you dispute the evidence? I'd quoted a number of CIA documents and others. Oh, no, 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 he replied. But we've decided to call in a journalistic adjudicator. Now, the term a journalistic adjudicator might have been invented by George Orwell. In fact, they managed to find the only journalist, no, only one of three journalists who'd been invited to Cambodia by Pol Pot. And, of course, he turned his thumbs down on the film, and I never heard from PBS again. Year Zero was broadcast in some 60 countries and became one of the most watched documentaries in the world. It was never shown in the United States. Of the five films I made on Cambodia, one of them was shown by WNET, the PBS station in New York. I believe it was shown at about one in the morning. On the basis of this single showing, when most people are asleep, it was awarded... an an Emmy. What what marvellous irony. It was worthy of a prize, but not an audience. Harold Pinter's subversive truth, I believe, was that he made the connection between imperialism and fascism and described a battle for history that's almost never reported This is the great silence of the media age. And this is the secret heart of propaganda today. A propaganda so vast in scope that I'm always astonished that so many Americans know and understand as much as they do. We are talking about a system, of course, not personalities. And yet a great many decent people believe the problem is George W. Bush and his gang. And yes the Bush gang are extreme. But my experience is that they're no more than an extreme version of what has gone before. In my lifetime, more wars have been started by liberal Democrats than by Republicans. Ignoring this truth is a guarantee that the propaganda system and the war-making system will continue. We've had a branch of the Democratic Party running Britain for the last 10 years. Blair, apparently a Liberal, has taken Britain to war more times than any Prime Minister in the modern era. Yes, his current pal is George Bush, but his first love was Bill Clinton. The most violent president of the 20th century, the late 20th century. Blair's successor, Gordon Brown, is also a devotee of Clinton and Bush. The other day, Brown said, The days of Britain having to apologise for the British Empire are over. We should celebrate. Like Blair, like Clinton, like Bush, Brown believes in the liberal truth that the battle for history has been won. That the millions who died in deliberately imposed famines in British Imperial India will be forgotten, like the millions who have died in the American empire will be forgotten. And like Blair, his successor is confident that professional journalism is on his side. For most journalists, whether they realize it or not, are groomed to be tribunes of an ideology that regards itself as non-ideological, that presents itself as the natural center, the very fulcrum of civilized modern life, This may well be the most powerful and most dangerous ideology we have ever known because it's open-ended. This is liberalism. I'm not denying the virtues of of liberalism. Far from it. We're all beneficiaries of them. But if we deny its dangers, its open-ended project, and the all-consuming power of its propaganda, then we deny our right to the true democracy, because liberalism and true democracy are not the same. Liberalism began as a cult of the elite in the 19th century, and true democracy is never handed down by elites. It is always fought for and struggled for. A senior member of the anti-war coalition, United for Peace and Justice, said recently, and I quote her, the Democrats are using the politics of reality, unquote. Her liberal historical reference point was Vietnam. She said that President Johnson began withdrawing troops from Vietnam after a Democratic Congress began to vote against the war. That's not what happened. The troops were withdrawn from Vietnam over four long years, and during that time, the United States killed more people in Vietnam, Cambodia and Laos with bombs than were killed in all the preceding years. And that's what's happening in Iraq. The bombing has doubled since last year, and this is not being reported. And who began this bombing? Bill Clinton began it. During the 1990s, Clinton rained bombs on Iraq in what was euphemistically called the no-fly zones. At the same time, he imposed a medieval siege called economic sanctions, killing, as I've mentioned, perhaps a million people, including the documented figure of 500,000 children. Almost none of this carnage was reported in the so-called mainstream media. Last year, a study by the John Hopkins School of Public Health found that since the invasion of Iraq, 655,000 Iraqis had died as a direct result of the invasion. Official documents show that the Blair government knew this figure to be credible. In February, Les Roberts, the author of the report, said the figure was equal to the figure of deaths in the Fordham University study of the Rwandan genocide the media response to Robert's shocking revelation was silence. What may well be the greatest episode of organized killing for a generation, in Harold Pinter's words, did not happen. It didn't matter.
1: You're listening to John Pilger on Lapdogs with Laptops. This is Independent Alternative Radio. To get copies of this program, just call us... 1-800-444-1977 one 800 444 Again, that's one 800 444 Or go online, our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org.
0: Many people who regard themselves on the left supported Bush's attack on Afghanistan. That the CIA had supported Osama bin Laden was ignored... That the Clinton administration had secretly backed the Taliban, even giving them high-level briefings of the CIA, is virtually unknown in the United States. The Taliban were secret partners with the oil giant Unical in building an oil pipeline across Afghanistan. And when a Clinton official was reminded that the Taliban persecuted women, he said, we can live with that. There is compelling evidence that Bush decided to attack Afghanistan not as a result of 9-11, but two months earlier, in July 2001. This is virtually unknown in the United States, publicly, like the scale of civilian casualties in Afghanistan. To my knowledge, only one mainstream reporter, Jonathan Steele of The Guardian in London, has investigated civilian casualties in Afghanistan His estimate is 20,000 dead civilians, and that was three years ago. The enduring tragedy of Palestine is due in great part, great part to the silence and compliance of the so-called liberal left. Hamas is described repeatedly as sworn to the destruction of Israel. The New York Times, Associated Press, the Boston Globe, take your pick. they'll they'll all use this line as a standard disclaimer. And it's false. Even more important, that Hamas has undergone an historic ideological shift in the last few years, which amounts to a recognition of what it calls the reality of Israel, is virtually unknown. And that Israel is sworn to the destruction of Palestine is unspeakable. There is a pioneering study done by Glasgow University on the reporting of Palestine. They interviewed young people who watched TV news in Britain. More than 90% thought the illegal settlers were Palestinian. The more they watched, the less they knew, in Danny Schechter's famous phrase. The current most dangerous silence is over nuclear weapons and the return of the Cold War. The Russians understand clearly that the so-called American defense shield in Eastern Europe is designed to subjugate and humiliate them. Yet the front pages here talk about Putin starting a new Cold War, and there is silence about the development of an entirely new American nuclear system called Reliable Weapons Replacement, RRW, which is designed to blur the distinction between conventional war and nuclear war, a long-held ambition. In the meantime, Iran is being softened up, with the liberal media playing almost the same role it played before the Iraq invasion. And as for the Democrats, look at how Barack Obama has become the voice of the Council on Foreign Relations, one of the propaganda organs of the old liberal Washington establishment. Obama writes that he wants the troops home, and I quote, we must not rule out military force against long-standing adversaries such as Iran and Syria." Unquote. Listen to this from the liberal Obama, and I quote, At moment of great peril in the past century, our leaders ensured that America, by deed and by example, led and lifted the world, that we stood for and fought for the freedom sought by billions of people beyond our borders." Unquote. You know, That's the nub of the propaganda, the brainwashing if you like, that seeps into the lives of every American and many of us who are not Americans. From right to left, secular to God-fearing. What so few people know is that in the last half century United States administrations have overthrown 50 governments, many of them democracies, In the process, 30 countries have been attacked and bombed with the loss of countless lives. Bush-bashing is all very well and is justified. But the moment we begin to accept the siren call of the Democrats' drivel about standing up and fighting for freedom sought by billions, the battle for history is lost and we ourselves are silenced. So what should we do? That question, often asked in meetings I've addressed, even meetings as informed as those in this conference, is itself interesting. It's my experience that people in the so-called third world rarely ask the question, because they know what to do. And some have paid with their freedom and their lives, but they knew what to do. It's a question that many on the, the democratic left, small d, have yet to answer. Real information, subversive information, remains the most potent power of all, and I believe we must not fall into the trap of believing that the media speaks for the public. That wasn't true in Stalinist Czechoslovakia, and it isn't true in Bush's United States. In all the years I've been a journalist... I've never known public consciousness to have risen as fast as it's rising today. Yes, its direction and shape is unclear, partly because people are now deeply suspicious of political alternatives and because the Democratic Party has succeeded in seducing and dividing the electoral left. And yet this growing critical public awareness is all the more remarkable when you consider the sheer scale of indoctrination the mythology of a superior way of life, and the current manufactured state of fear. Why did the New York Times come clean in that editorial last year? Not because it opposes Bush's wars. Look at the coverage of Iran. That that editorial was a rare acknowledgement that the public were beginning to see the concealed role of the media, that people were beginning to read between the lines. If Iran is attacked, the reaction and the upheaval cannot be predicted. The National Security and Homeland Security Presidential Directive gives Bush power over all facets of government in an emergency. It's not unlikely the Constitution will be suspended. The laws to round up hundreds of thousands of so-called terrorists and enemy combatants are already on the books. That's not paranoia to be understanding of that. I believe that these dangers are understood by the public who have come a long way since 9-11 and a long way since the propaganda that linked Saddam Hussein to Al-Qaeda. That's why they voted for the Democrats last November only to be betrayed. But they need truth. And journalists ought to be agents of truth not the courtiers of power. I believe a fifth estate is possible, the product of a people's movement that monitors, deconstructs and counters the media, the corporate media. In every university, in every media college, in every newsroom, teachers of journalism and journalists themselves need to ask themselves about the part they now play in the bloodshed in the name of a bogus objectivity. Such a movement within the media could herald a perestroika of a kind we've never known. This is all possible. Silences can be broken. In Britain, the National Union of Journalists has undergone a radical change and has called for a boycott of Israel. The website... (laughs) The website MediaLens.org has single-handedly called the BBC to account... In the United States, wonderfully free rebellious spirits populate the web. I can't mention them all here, but from Tom Feely's International Clearinghouse to Mike Albert's ZNet, to Counterpunch Online and the splendid work of Fair. The best reporting of Iraq appears on the web. Darja Miles, courageous journalism and... and citizen reporters like Joe Wilding, who reported the siege of Fallujah from inside the city. In Venezuela, Greg Wilpert's investigations turned back much of the virulent propaganda now aimed at Hugo Chavez. Make no mistake, it's the threat of freedom of speech for the majority in Venezuela that lies behind the campaign in the West on behalf of the corrupt RCTV. The challenge for the rest of us is to lift this subjugated knowledge from out of the underground and take it to ordinary people. We need to make haste. Liberal democracy is moving to a form of corporate dictatorship. This is an historic shift and the media must not be allowed to be its facade, but itself made into a popular, burning issue and subjected to direct action. That great whistleblower Tom Paine warned that if the majority of the people were denied the truth and the ideas of truth, it was time to storm what he called the Bastille of words. That time is now. Thank you. That's a very important question about what's happening to Al Jazeera. Al Jazeera really cut through this in, its, uh, in its, its coverage. It had reporters on the ground uh, in uh, a- Afghanistan, in Iraq, with the people actually describing what had happened, and its cameras showed what had happened. And I admired a lot of its frontline reporting. I thought this was real frontline reporting uh, again. Al Jazeera has come under huge pressure, from Washington the Emir of Doha uh, who (laughs) manages has managed to uh, allow Al Jazeera to have the freedom it's had uh, at the same time as a few minutes away uh, host one of the big American bases in the Middle East has come under huge pressure from Washington to shut them up well of course the uh, Al Jazeera correspondents were murdered by uh, the American military in Afghanistan. But that message wasn't really taken, so the greater pressure is now being applied. As a result, uh, Al Jazeera has been importing a lot of what I'd call BBC people uh, from Britain, uh, such as David Frost and others of the professional, respectable media in order to promote its English language services. I think it's very important that uh, Al Jazeera, what is happening inside Al Jazeera, is it becomes an issue, becomes a media issue for all of us because it broadcasts to millions of people throughout the Middle East and has given them, most of them living in autocracies and dictatorships, has given them free information for the first time, and that should not be allowed to be diluted. So if, yes, we all agree that the uh, the media, the corporate-run
1: media, are basically liars, but if most of what the United States government
0: does is common knowledge, how much responsibility does the U.S. public have for believing what the media tell them? Yeah, we, we can't, and I, I hope... The point of my remarks earlier was that um, we can't go on saying that the corporate media lies to us. I believe the responsibility is on us to uh, make the connection with ordinary people. It's far too easy to say that the American public or the public in any uh, country is supine. I can assure you that, as I've worked within the the so-called mainstream media, one of the features of discussion in a newsroom is often a barely-veiled contempt for the readers or viewers or listeners. Um, Where I started journalism in Australia, the word apathy... I had to go and look it up in the dictionary, I think, earlier on. But the entire population were apathetic. Forget the great struggles that had gone on in the country. Well, yes, we were meant to forget them. And the whole idea of believing that a population is supine, you convince convince yourself. This is not to deny, and I believe the United States is, is probably the prime example of this, that of a mythologies, house of light on the hill, all that stuff that Reagan pushed out and that every president has pushed out, that institutions push out, the schools push out, over and over again. What's it called? Exceptionalism? I used to say, when they used to accuse me of being uh, often in Britain, and I'd be working from here and sending reports back of being anti-American... Um, which was absurd, because all my the millions of people of Americans were then anti-Americans as well. Uh, so <laughs> the whole, no, but the whole notion of that is it, so ridiculous. Uh, I suppose what I'm saying is that we can't accept that that behind often a conservative front of ordinary people, there is an extraordinary scope for understanding, especially these days. People are angry and frustrated. I just, I just tell this one story briefly. I, I wrote a series of articles some years ago about a town in Ohio called Bealsville. Bealsville had one of the highest death rates of its young men in the Vietnam War. In fact, Their gravestones overlooked the high school football field where they had played. It had that kind of symbolism. Bealsville was just about as conservative as you could imagine. And yet what had happened to their sons and the way they had been lied to, that their sons had not died uh, in heroic uh, action but had often been killed by their own Forces or by accident or something something terrible and awful and unnecessary had happened to them. They, it's not that they, that they rejected the idea that the sun should not die for a, a cause, if it was a cause. It was their, their awareness which happened in a very short time of what had happened to them. Uh, changed the character of that town and everybody in it. I went back something like five years later to talk to them and it was as if there'd been a metamorphosis. Now, okay, that doesn't happen to everybody. Not everybody loses sons, fortunately. But that's the kind of facade behind which there is a huge potential for change among ordinary people and why we should not dismiss them in the way that they are so often dismissed within the corporate media. I just had a follow-up question
1: about what you commented on earlier regarding some of the so-called mainstream journalists that you know that it will tell you in public uh... about their admittance of complicity and you know their work in helping sell the war and occupation i I wanted to hear what what your experience is as to why these folks won't uh, aside from job security and that kind of thing why they won't band together and go public or
0: or or make a move like that well i think there there are many there are many reasons It, it You mentioned job security. I mean, the seduction of journalists by the corporate world is quite something. You know, for most... Well, for all of my um, career working for British newspapers, journalists were paid enough, we were well paid, but we weren't in the top bracket by any means. Journalists now particularly in the United States, and perhaps this has always been true in television, I think, have been given a sort of Aladdin's cave. You know, they do get huge salaries with all the stock options and so on that go... So they become part of the system, and they have a lot, they think, materially to lose. So that seduction is very, very real on, on certain journalists. I mean, the person that I... One of the people I was, uh, was referring to, in fact he has gone public, is Chuck Lewis, who was the former 60 Minutes reporter, who went off, wonderful investigative journalist, who went off and helped to found the Centre for Public Integrity in Washington. And he believes, he said that without doubt, that had the corporate media done its job, as he says, lived up to its constitutional responsibilities. Constitutionally, the freest press in the world, the war wouldn't have happened. It just would not have happened, such as its power. But of course, we saw the default of that power, and the war was promoted through the media. But I suppose the short answer to that, that people in the corporate world, in the corporate media, are internalised. They're groomed, they're trained, often without knowing it. You know, I've had discussions with people who really have stood in front of me and told me how impartial they are and how objective they are. As if they've sort of risen to a nirvana, you know? And the BBC are good at this. And the moment they use that word, I know they're not. <laughs> I know they're not. And But that cult, almost, it's a super cult of... of the, the respectable media. And it's promoted by great, august bodies like the Columbia School of Journalism, you know, <laughs> which hand down tablets of sort of things, and, you know. And it's all pompous and a lot of rubbish, a lot of it, because it's, a, you know, journalism is about uh, tr- trying truthfully, truthfully as possible to find out what the hell is going on. ...without fear or favour, and keeping the record straight. And it is about humanity, and it's above all, it is not believing the any official line, you know? Not believing the press... Re- re- you know, that's why I love quoting endlessly, and everyone who's listened to me has heard that Claude Coben quote so often about not believing anything until it's officially denied, and it's absolutely true. Um, That's what journalism is. But none of that ethos, if you like, is ever promoted in media colleges. In fact, the opposite. You know, you have people often who are running media colleges who are themselves former BBC or CBS or so on. So, I think it's about training. And it can be subliminal, it can be overt, it can take various forms. But that doesn't mean to say that we as journalists ought not to be aware of it.
1: You were just listening to John Pilger on Lapdogs with Laptops. This classic from the AR archives was recorded in 2007. John Pilger was an internationally renowned award-winning journalist and documentary filmmaker. WikiLeaks called him a ferocious speaker of truth to power. He was a friend and ally, and I'll miss him. He passed away on December 30th, 2023. This program is produced by Alternative Radio, we're an independent nonprofit in our 38th year, was supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature such voices as Noam Chomsky, Chris Hedges, and Arundhati Roy. And we have a series of programs with John Pilger. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. For copies of today's program, John Pilger on Lapdogs with Laptops, and for Noam Chomsky's book, The Essential Chomsky, just call us, one 800 That's one 800 Or online, our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. Printed transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program are free of charge. Just call us, one 800 Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. We go out with Chumbawamba. Everything you know is wrong.
0: Misinformation. Misinformation. Taking scissors to play. With the black folk down in Florida. Colored pens and. For sexing up the. I'm the someone who knew. I'm Telling Pre-September. I lean on in the loop to help them unremember. I was flying on UA-93 That shadow in the footage It was probably me I'm the rumour, I'm the doubt, I'm the lie But you wouldn't stand near me If you didn't want to die you know is wrong
1: There's a buzz missing out of this song Everything you know is wrong